Well, good morning again, and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. We are in our Love Your Neighbor month, and so if you've missed the last couple weeks of sermons, last week we talked about our uh, the, the need and the call to love those in poverty. And so we talked about what that looks like as a church here locally and internationally down the road a mile and then 7,000 miles away. And so this Saturday, yesterday, we collected food for our local community cupboard, which we send people to often. We had a goal of 2,000 pounds of food, and we raised, or people, you brought in over 2,030 pounds of food, and so we're thankful that we get to deliver that this week to the cupboard and that we can continue to bless those who are hungry here in our community. And last week, we challenged the congregation, the church, that we want to raise $16,000 to give clean water to boys and girls and families and refugees in Uganda. And so we talked about South Sudan last week and what that situation was like and how they are on the run, and they have, they have settled in Uganda, and there is a need for water, clean water, and they can't keep up. And so we're partnering with a project called Never Thirst, and we are raising money. We're making sacrifices, so we're going to feel it. Right? It's not just give your savings. It's we're going to make sacrifices, and we're going to feel the, the cost, and we're going to give. Uh, we're praying that we could give upwards of $16,000 to give to this well through Never Thirst. And so we're going to collect that money three weeks from today, the first Sunday in June, I think is when that is. The next Sunday, just to kind of round out our Love Your Neighbor Month, is our annual Missions Sunday. And so we'll have one of our missionaries sharing. We're going to have our Sunday night dessert where we get to meet a new missionary. We get to hear from one of our own missionary families who's, who's raising money to go uh, next year to E-Town College, the Beard family. And so we want to encourage you next week as well, as we love our neighbors, we recognize that our neighbors are the nations. And that we want the gospel to go across all bodies of water to all people groups. And so next Sunday, we'll conclude our series with, with um, loving our neighbors, the nations. And so this morning, we're talking about life. Loving our neighbors which is unborn, living kiddos, little children, which we so deeply value here at Mount Calvary Church. I mean, we have Mount Calvary Christian School. We have child dedication. And so this morning, we're going to focus on how to love children. So join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, Beyond the voice of mere man, grant that we may hear you speak, gracious God, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and for the conversion of those who've yet come to believe. In Christ's sake we pray, amen. As I was preparing to share about life, unborn life, um, I, I studied a little bit of history this week, and I was pretty overwhelmed with some of the history that I discovered. The Roman Empire. For the first 500 years of the Roman Empire, the most vulnerable people in the empire is children. Of all the injustices, slaves because of war, women, all sorts of racial tension and corruption, by far the most op oppressed and threatened people group were infants. And I was reading about this practice that was common that, that first 500 years of the Roman Empire called child exposure. 
I'd not heard of this practice. And the more I read, and the more that I studied, I was at the same time appalled and completely heartbroken. So here's what this practice looked like. If you gave birth to a child that you didn't want, in Rome, there were designated places that you can go and leave your child, both in the city and immediately outside of the city gates. And you could just leave your infant and walk away. No questions asked, no repercussions, no judgment. And not, this was not just allowed. This was, this was the practice. Oftentimes, the reasons why people would leave their children in one of these child exposure zones or areas were financial. They couldn't afford having a baby. Some of the reasons, sometimes it was for religious reasons. Some believed that children were cursed by the gods and they didn't want that curse. Some of the reasons were these children were illegitimate because of adultery And they didn't want the shame that it would bring on their name and their family's name. Some of the reasons that children were exposed in these areas and left was because of gender. Many, many people wanted sons and not daughters. Physical blemishes was another reason. If the child had some disability and the family wasn't sure how they were going to care for this baby, they would take him to this child exposure area. There was a famous, a famous physician in Ephesus that we have his medical books, and one of these books was, was on how to determine whether your child is worth keeping. And so it was like a physical exam, walkthrough of how to observe your child and determine if they're going to be weak or strong, smart or not smart, and help you determine if your child is someone that you should take to the child exposure area. And we have this, we have this book. And so this is what parents would do. They would take their child to the designated areas. And we have more records of this happening in Ephesus because of different documents that we've uncovered. They would go to what's called the Agora. This is the city assembly where many people were. There was also out right outside of the city gates where trash was taken. And, and the word, and as, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm just appalled, but the word that they would use, the Latin phrase that they would use to describe these children who've been dropped off is the Latin word res vacantes, translated an unwanted thing. And this is what they became. The moment you dropped your child... This was no longer your child, but this was res vacantes. And what would happen to these children? Two futures were most likely for these kids that were dropped off. One, death through exposure of the elements, where we get the name child exposure. Some would be taken by people and adopted as slaves. We have records of Egyptians doing this, naming these adopted slaves coprius, meaning off the dunghill because that's where they got these children. We've got examples in Ephesus where children were taken and raised as slaves to the god of Artemis. And so this, this was Rome 
For 500 years, this is how things happened. There was no significant voice speaking against this. It was commonplace. But then in the middle of the first century, something changed. Something began to happen. Babies began getting picked up off the streets, off the trash piles, not left for dead, not taken for slavery, but they were given a new future. Babies, all of a sudden, middle of the first century, started being adopted. What was happening? What was causing this disruption in this very common cultural practice? Well, we know what happened. The gospel happened, and Jesus happened. And we started hearing the truth of the gospel and of how God made us and that all life is precious and sacred and valuable. And people started hearing the gospel and hearing what Jesus came to do. And it starts changing how they practice and value life. And so we've got records of Christians taking these children. There was one record about, that I was reading about a lady who was raised as a pagan she worked as a pagan. She lived as a pagan. She was saved by the gospel. And it, the story goes where she had worked in the temple, but when she was saved, she left the temple and she started an orphanage for these, for these children. Christians started adoption agencies until finally child exposure became illegal. But as we look at Ephesus, it's interesting kind of reading some of this background in Ephesus. It makes sense why Paul in Ephesians 1, many years ago, if you remember who we are in Christ, we are adopted. Paul makes an emphasis because this was a marker, a clear marker of following Jesus is that you value life and you see yourself as, adopt, as adopted. And to just picture what this would have been like. I mean, just picture, I mean, a, a woman coming to know Jesus in Ephesus and learning these doctrinal truths about the sacred preciousness of all life, of the dignity and honor that all people have. And this woman, just picturing this woman who's learning and being discipled, and all of a sudden one day she decides, it's time. I'm going to take one of these children that are just exposed all around me. And when people ask me, for what purpose? How will they be your slave? And you say, and you respond, this woman would respond, this is my son. And so this is what Christians were doing. Armed with the truth, they were going to the streets and to the, to outside the city gates to the trash piles. And they were making unwanted things, sons and daughters. I mean, this is the gospel. This is the picture of what Jesus has done for us spiritually, and now this is the call for the church. So for us, as we think about where we are today, obviously we're in a different context, but as I'm reading this history, my question for us as I'm thinking through this Sunday is what is the call for the church today? Like what are we to do now? We don't have child exposure happening like it did in Rome, but we have the number that I found, 400,000 children in foster care today waiting for a home. And we have 115,000 abortions happening today. And so what is our call? 
church? What is our, how are we going to go to the piles of trash? And so this morning we've got one thought, one passage, and then I want to introduce an organization that we're going to be walking with as we value life. One thought, one passage, and then we'll introduce love life. Our thought this morning is on the screen. God sees, hears, and responds to, to the vulnerable, and so should we. God sees, hears, and responds to the vulnerable, and so should we. And this passage could have applied to last week's message just as it applies to this week's. But our passage this morning is Genesis 21, 14 through 20. Genesis 21, 14 through 20. If you have a Bible and can turn there, if not, we'll put it on the screen. Story of Abraham. Verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he took bread and a skin of water, and he gave it to Hagar. Putting it on her shoulder along with the child, he sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Genesis 21, 14 is right in the middle of the story of Abraham. And perhaps you'd know a little bit about Abraham. He was given a promise from God that he would be a great nation, that he would have a family as numerous as the sands in the seashore and the stars in the sky. And as the story goes, we know that he's promised to have many sons, lots of this big family. But the problem was, is before that you can have many sons, you have to have one son. And Abraham and his wife Sarah aren't able to get pregnant. And so Sarah starts thinking about this promise, and she comes up with her own idea about how to get God moving towards fulfillment of this process. She brings Abraham, his concubine, Hagar, and he says, how about this? Let's let God fulfill the promise he's given to you through Hagar. Abraham just kind of goes with it. He has a son through Hagar, and he names him Ishmael. How does Sarah feel about this as the story continues? She grows bitter and angry, and I think she probably regretted the idea that she had because she does not like Hagar, and she does not like Ishmael. Fast forward to Genesis 18. God comes back to Abraham and Sarah and says, pretty much says, like, you have tried to fulfill this promise your own way, but it's not the way it's going to work. Sarah, by next year's time, you will be pregnant. She laughs, and God has the last laugh, and she becomes pregnant. She has a son, and we know the son's name, the child of the promise, Isaac. Okay, as the story continues, Sarah still does not like Hagar and does not like Ishmael. There's this scene in Genesis 21 where Big brother Ishmael laughs at Isaac, and Sarah at this point has had enough. She goes to Abraham and she says, get them out of my presence. Be done with them, Abraham. They are getting in the way of your son, the child of the promise. And once again, Abraham very questionably listens to Sarah, and he sends them off. He gets rid of them. That's what we've just read. But I don't want you to miss how dire of a situation this would have been for Sarah, I mean for, for Hagar and for Ishmael. They 
are leaving everything. So not just inheritance, not just physical provision, but they have lost a father and a husband. I mean, they have been disowned. To be sent off like this is to be sent off with no hope and no future in complete abandonment. Their future literally extends as far as their water that Abraham gives them will take them. And that's what happens in verse 15. Read with me. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite of him and she lifted up her voice and wept. So just process that. I mean, it's, it, this communicates so powerfully. I mean, the tragedy of the moment when you as a mother realize you have no more options I mean, nothing left to do that you sit your son under a tree and you distance yourself because you can't bear it. This is a nightmare. But the story's not done. Verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy. And he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness, became an expert with the bow. God intervened. God heard the voice of the boy. The mother couldn't hear the voice of the boy. Ironically, God did, and he can, and this is who God is. He hears us when we can't, and God provides physically water. The boy needed water, but that's not all that God provided. He provided spiritually for the boy. He was, it says he was with the boy. He's given hope and a future purpose, trained him with the bow, and here's the question. Here's the question to me as I'm reading this. Why would God do this? Why? I mean, if, you, if you're making a plea on behalf of, of, of these two, Ishmael and Hagar, what is the basis for the appeal that you're making before God for their, on their behalf? They have money and they're smart. And look at how... Look at how accomplished they are. No. I mean, they have literally have nothing. An orphan, an orphan, a disowned mother. Or how about he is part of the promise? He's, the pro he's not the promise. I mean, you, you would expect he would be the son, the child of the promise that God made to Abraham. But we know he is not the child of the promise. What could the appeal be given to God? Only appeal could be, save them, they are human. This is a child and a mother who are completely 
vulnerable. They matter to God because they are made by him. Earlier in Genesis 16, I like this conversation with Hagar and, and God. He, she declares, you are the God who sees me. So here's kind of where I get that main thought for the morning. God sees He sees her. She declares, you are the God who sees me. He hears like he heard the boy crying, and then he responds. And this is who God is. God has not changed today. He still sees, hears, and responds to vulnerable, broken, needy people. He's not changed And so for us, as we think about how does this apply to our current context today, does God see, hear, and respond to babies in the womb who some would say, I would say, the most vulnerable of all that there could possibly be? Yes, he does. I mean, little babies, life with no voice, hardly any rights, no ability to defend themselves, And 60 million have died in the last decade. 60 million. Tragic. It's hard to process. Does God see, hear, and respond to babies? Yes, he does. Just like he does here in the book of Genesis. Now you may say, well, I'm not sure or I don't believe that what you say is life is actually life that they're not humans yet, that they're not people, they're not babies yet. They are merely a clump of cells in the womb. And, and to just, I'm going to be sensitive, try to be sensitive, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense on any level. Not on science. We can talk about science all day, and we don't have all day. I have like 10 minutes. Now let's just think about science here. My little girl Caroline, who's 11, I remember her so clearly, my firstborn, when she was a little toddler, and her hair, beautiful, light, blonde, wispy hair, and I remember picking her up off the changing table. It was this like flannel top on the, on the, on the changing table. I pick her up, and her hair just ding from the static, and she had this big smile when she wasn't crying all the time. She had this beautiful beautiful smile and those blue eyes. Beautiful blue eyes, the kind of eyes that you're like, you're not leaving my house, little girl, ever, because she was as beautiful as they come. And we had her when we were in Virginia. And if her life as a little toddler was ever in jeopardy, if people were out to get her for any reason, if people were coming up against her, I can tell you, The church that we were in, the neighbors that we had, the family that we have would have done anything and everything to protect our little Caroline. She is a person, and we would have defended her no matter what. And the question for us is, when did that happen? When, when, at what point will we defend someone if we will defend them as toddlers? And I started doing a little bit of research on the formation of these sweet little babies. That hair, 
that little wispy hair that Caroline had started forming around 14 weeks. Those blue eyes were, were forming at four weeks, responding at light at 16 weeks. The smile at six weeks. Heartbeat, six weeks. And all of this, scientific signs of life. I mean, just thinking about it, that is, she, she is showing signs of life already. Yet this is well before when many abortions, well, after when many abortions will happen. At a minimum, and I got to move it here, at a minimum, we should be a lot more confused about this. I, I mean, at a minimum, we should recognize how th- this doesn't make, this is hard to reconcile. I remember going to the doctor with Truman vividly. I was talking to Ashley about this. And when she's getting her first appointments with our middle son, and, and we're looking at Truman, we're seeing him move, and we're hearing his heartbeat, we're counting his fingers and his toes, we're laughing at how he squirms and moves around. I mean, we are looking at my son, Truman Charles Watson, and, and the doctor was, was celebrating with us, encouraging us to see our son. But every time at the end of the appointment, you know what she did? She said she encouraged us to have prenatal testing done. And it was like something kind of just changed in the room to determine this test that would, and I'm not going to get too medical here, but I just remember being so confused by this because she was adamantly encouraging us to take this prenatal prenatal genetic test to determine whether or not Truman had some sort of disorder, particularly Down syndrome. And then we could determine that. And she said, this is just to prepare you mentally. But then she'd hand us a brochure. And you know what the brochure says. The brochure says all the reasons to do this, but then quote, so that you can make important healthcare decisions based on what you find. And we refused. This is Truman Watson. Like, Down syndrome or not, he is our son again and again and again. And it was just confusing to me, right? Confusing that the moment I'm counting his fingers and toes, she's now handing us a brochure that says, if he's not the way you think he is, you have options. Confusing. Yet this is the reality. 70% of women who find out through that genetic test that their son or daughter has Down syndrome, 70% will not go through with the pregnancy. God sees, he hears, and he responds. And so should we. So should we. He sees those in the womb. He sees those who've who've had abortion as part of their history. And and I say this adamantly, that if if, if you have walked the path of abortion in your past, if it's a part of your story, male or female, this is not the Sunday that God brings you to church to shame you. It's not the Sunday that, that you have to sit and be shamed because that's, that is not the message. God doesn't want to shame you. He wants to redeem and use your history and give you hope and healing and forgiveness. It's not about shame. Jesus came with 100% grace and 100% truth all the time. And so listen, if you are overwhelmed with the truth this morning 
of abortion, however that crosses your history, know that God's grace is close, that he wants you to experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that you can have through Jesus who comes not to add burdens to you this morning. He's not coming to burden you. He came to lift your burden. That at the cross, that we can have this mercy and this forgiveness. But how can we respond, church? Because that's the question. And you know, I'm kind of fired up up here. I, I have been, I can't, if I say this every week, you know, I've been deeply burdened this week. Just, just thinking about all the children that need help and need a voice. So what do we, what can we do? Okay, God responded. God responded in Genesis by giving them water. The question is, well, how does he respond today? Listen to this. How does God respond today to the vulnerable and to the needy moms and dads and vulnerable little children in the womb? How does he respond? Through the church. God made the church on the foundation and the cornerstone of Jesus. And if Jesus loved the vulnerable, and he did, then that pulsates through our foundational identity as the church. And so he wants us to be his response to the vulnerable today. And so just a few things as we close. He wants us to be a church that prays. Praise. So this week in your little insert, there's not questions there's not questions, but you can, we want you to spend, commit to time praying every night this week. If you feel compelled to fast, then fast. But be praying through the different topics. There's more topics. Pray appropriately with your family. We recognize with younger children how you pray might look differently. But we are calling the church to pray this week. And then on Saturday with Love Life, who we'll introduce in a second, will we'll lead us at Planned Parenthood in York they're not open. It's not about us engaging. It's about us praying, recognizing that, that we have an issue here in our county and that we are called to pray. Secondly, we want to be a church that is a refuge for those who are pregnant. The most astounding stat that I saw this week was that 40% of women who have abortions sat in church one time in the last four weeks. I, I mean... Why is the church, why are, why, are people, why are women and men running from the church and not to the church? Well, it's not hard to imagine why. Because of the shame and the gossip and the abandonment. But listen, that's not Mount Calvary Church. And so we want to say to you this morning, if you're pregnant and you're not sure where to turn and you're not sure what to do and you're not sure how it's going to all work out, Come to us, and we will pray for you, and we will care for you, and we will help you, and we will be with you every step of the way. How can the, the church respond to the vulnerable by being a church that doesn't shame those who are pregnant, but cares for and is God's grace and truth to them? And maybe you've had something in your past that causes you to feel guilt. We are prepared to meet with you, Elizabeth prepared to do a Bible study with you, to, to share the truth of forgiveness and hope and redemption through the cross. And so, and not only that, I, I don't even know what we're going to do with this. Honestly, how can we be a church that supports and encourages fostering and adopting more than we do? 
How can we do a better job of that? I'll have to come back and talk more about that later because I don't know, but I'm thinking, and that's dangerous because we want to be who God wants us to be. And so at this point, I'm going to introduce Sarah. She's going to come up. She represents Love Life. This is an organization that that is close to our heart, and so she's going to share about Love Life and how we're going to partner with them as we seek to meet the needs of those who are vulnerable. 